Well, I'm so glad you chose to be with us in worship this morning. It's a good start to the week. And this morning, we're having an opportunity to dive back into this book, which I found, and hopefully you found as well, to be so relevant to our lives. This morning, continuing in this chapter 8 of Romans, and uh, you may notice we've spent a little bit more time than we usually do on a particular chapter, but this chapter is so packed with good stuff, I couldn't help myself but labor in it a bit, and so I'm excited to be looking at verses 18 to through 30 this morning. You can start turning there on your Bibles or on your phones or whatever means you have for that. Think about the, the topic as it starts. I was thinking of one of the things that was a big deal for us as a family growing up. My family was very into our annual family vacation. It was, uh, to say it was a, a big deal is a huge understatement. You've heard me talk about it before. I don't know if vacations were a big deal in your life, but we had this annual trip we did every uh, July uh, to Ocean City, New Jersey. So we'd make the pack up the station wagon, start this trek. My dad was so crazy about this vacation, was so looked forward to it. You could ask him any time during the course of the year, so how many days till Ocean City? And you'd see his brain just like a calculator going. Doo, 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 doo. You'd ask him in October, he'd be like 262. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. So we'd always test him on this through the, through the course of the year. As he got a little bit older, uh, we bought him actually a, a, a little clock that actually was a countdown clock, and it went by, told you immediately how many days it was, so that was a, a help in his senior years. Uh, but today, he just reminded me, he said, it's 160 days, Scott. And so, uh, so he still uh, remembers uh, to this day. So, so I don't know if you're like that, but I remember another thing. Not only did he remember the days, but as it got uh, closer, the anticipation would start to escalate. It became a, a bigger and bigger deal. In fact, the last two weeks, he would start packing the station wagon in advance. He'd be getting, getting ready in the morning, and you're like, where's my shirt? And he's like, oh, he already packed that for the trip. So by the time the trip's coming, you're wearing your old clothes, your, your closets are empty, everything's all ready and packed to go, and the, the anticipation, it was somewhat annoying, actually. He's not in this service, so I can say that. But, uh, but, but it's somewhat annoying, but the anticipation as you got closer just grew and grew and grew. And as I think about that, as it relates to our spiritual lives, as we grow in our walk with Christ... As we get closer and closer to his return or us joining him in heaven, my hope and my prayer for us is that same anticipation is growing in your heart, in your life. That that's a, it's almost, you could say, a, a, a sign of growing spiritual maturity the more and more we long to be present with the Lord. The more and the more that we long for things to be made new, the, the more and more we long to be done with this body of, of flesh and the sinful patterns that we have, the more and more we long to be out of this, this broken, messed up world that we're placed in, the more and more we long to be present with the Lord. That's something that should be amplifying and anticipation growing. And we're going to see that in our, our text this morning. That's, that's to be something that, that grows in us. So Paul does one, he points towards that anticipation and what's at the end of the line, but he also answers the question, which I believe is a critical one, is he answers the question, what do we do in the meantime? You notice that on your sermon notes there, that's what we've titled this morning, is in the meantime, how, how, what are expectations? How do we interact in this broken world? How do we live with the appropriate anticipation but also an appropriate understanding of how this life works. Let me pray for us before we dive in. 
Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word and how practical and relevant it is to us and how it speaks to us right where we're at. And I am thankful that you give us appropriate under, uh, expectations for what this life is to be like. I thank you that you've, you've exposed the reality that, we're, that we do have heaven to look forward to. We do have things to be made new. We do have all of those things that you've promised, but you've also revealed to us that there's going to be some challenging days. As even John was talking about a bit ago, you've revealed that. I pray this morning that you'd speak to us through this text, that this would clearly lay out what we're to do in the meantime. Thank you so much for your word. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, starting in verse 18, it really picks up where we left off last week, where we see that the future is very bright. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember, that was the theme last week when we were talking about that, the running idea that he's saying, listen, the things that you go through, the things that you experience now, any trials, any, any difficulties, pale in comparison of the good that's in advance. And, and to me, I was thinking about that this week is, man, I, I see around in our life and on our planet and in different people's experience, there's a lot of trial and difficulty and pain. So if he's saying, making that statement so bold to say, it's going to pale in comparison, it must be some really, really good days ahead. So when we ask the question to the believer, is it worth it? The answer here based on this verse is emphatically yes, absolutely. I was this week, this past week watching a, a movie with my wife and some friends. We were watching uh, the movie Everest. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's based on a true account of these men with this goal of climbing Mount Everest. That's a big deal. And, uh, and I was thinking the whole time as I'm watching this show, am I the only one that's seen this movie? Uh, so I'm watching this, and the whole time I'm watching, I keep asking myself, is it worth it? Is it, is it really worth it? Like th- this particular character or guy in the, in the movie, he's talking to his, his young wife on the phone on the other end of his satellite phone and talking to her. She's pregnant with her, I don't know if his first or second child, and, 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 he's, and he's sucking in his last breaths. I'm going to ruin the movie for it. He dies. Uh, sorry. Uh, and he's sucking in his last breaths, and, 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 and it's based on a true story. You can read about it. But, uh, but he, and I'm like, really? Really? Was it, was it worth it? Getting up there to the top? Oh, wow, you achieved that. Congratulations. You know, you're, I was reading that it was ne- it's negative, uh, typically around negative 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit on the top of Everest, and you're, there's like limited to no oxygen, and so you're up there freezing. You can't breathe, and you're like, really? Was it, was it worth it? It's like the complete opposite for us that are in Christ. When we get done, he's saying your conclusion as you look back at the trials and difficulties of this life, and somebody says, hey, Scott, now that you've made it through all that, you're here, you're present with the Lord, is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's going to be no hesitation, no reservation for those who are in Christ as to answering that question, was it worth it? The future is bright. Now Paul starts to explain a little bit of what to expect. He describes what life is like in the meantime as we wait for this awesome future glory. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits 
with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This section is really fascinating to me to think about this, that we always talk about us waiting with anticipation. But Paul starts by pulling away and looking at the bigger picture and saying, look, when you look at creation, it's eagerly waiting as well. Isn't that interesting to think about? Like uh, the animals, the ocean, the birds, the, uh, all, of the, all of the things that he's created, the universe, the stars, that they're waiting. And does it say that they're waiting with a little bit of like, yeah, this is going to be really nice when it comes? No, he's like, no, they're waiting. What does it describe? It says they're waiting as, as, as creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Now, I don't know a lot about women, I don't know a lot about childbirth. I don't understand it. But after being married for so long and having three kids of my own and being present for each one of their birth, one thing I do know is that childbirth is grueling. Any women giving an amen here? Is that, uh, that's, that's worthy of, of that. Uh, we can be Pentecostal for a moment. But, uh, but, but here, if you think about it, it's saying creation isn't just like, hey, someday it'll be nice. Like they're literally, it's, it's literally saying, oh, I can't wait for God to finally make things new. It describes here in the text what he's going to make new. is he's Finally, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God when we're finally revealed. Those of us who are children of God, you see, if you combine that with the rest of the teaching in Scripture that we're going to reign and rule over this universe, but now with God as the compass, God is the one that's directing and, and giving us. So finally, creation, when it's unfolded, will be under appropriate rule, rule done wisely. You don't have to look very far to see how broken creation is, whether it's the 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 uh, melting ice caps, or whether it's, I don't know if that's true, uh, whether, it's the, whether it's the pollution, whether, whether it's not the hunting animals to extinction. Even when you watch a nature show, I don't know if you're like me, I watch the, the lion chasing the gazelle, and I find myself like cheering on the gazelle. You're like, come on, you can do it. Like there's something about even the way nature works the murder, the killing, the hierarchy of animals, the whole, that whole uh, deal. There's something about it that tells you, man, this is broken. Something, something's, something's off with this. This is apart from God's initial design. And so this, I love reading even in Isaiah 11:6, where it talks about the wolf lying with the lamb. And you're like, man, there's some days ahead where things are going to be made right. Creation longs for it. Not just creation longing for it. Look as we continue, verse 23, believers also wait eagerly. It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice in the text there again the, the word 
groaning is used. I thought that was fascinating. Three different times in this section of, of Scripture. I don't know what comes to mind, the noise that... In fact, let's try that for a second. Let's try our best groan. Are you guys ready for audience participation? One, two, three. Ugh. Like, that was good. You guys have that down. I kind of feel, that's like me when I'm crawling out of bed in the morning, you know, and you're feeling your knees for the first time. Groaning. There, there's something uh, about us. There's something about us we see here that's groaning for what's to come. Those of us who are in Christ are eagerly waiting for something. What does it say in the text that we're eagerly waiting for? Adoption as sons. Adoptions as sons. We talked about that and we were like, I thought I already was adopted. Yes, we were adopted, but it's not come to fruition until the redemption of our bodies. Until we're given new bodies. Did you know that that's part of the package deal if you've embraced Christ? That there's that is on the horizon that you get a brand new body. Anybody else excited about that? Amen. Amen. Anybody else excited about that? I think it's a great day to look forward to. And it comes one of two ways. Either we by us passing from this life to the next or Christ's return. Either way, it's something that's on the horizon for us. As I'm getting into my 40s and I just nurse one injury after the other in basketball, uh, and you're just like, man, I look forward to that day. Like, are those of us that have had someone that we care or love die from disease or sickness or is currently in the middle of it, you're just like, man, I long, I groan for that day. I look forward to it with eager anticipation. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that, yes, we've been given the, the deposit, the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's given to us, but we can't fully enjoy that until we're given the new flesh. So it's those of us that are just like, oh, is heaven just all about us getting a, the new flesh? But why is the new flesh necessary? The new flesh is necessary because we have to get out of this broken, sin-filled flesh in order to perfectly commune with God. So it's not just about at the end of the line us having that new body and new, uh, new, a new existence. It's about enjoying Him fully. Our newness is critical in order for us to be instruments for His glory. So it says, in the meantime, we groan inwardly and we're described of having a hope, a hope that we cling to. And what does it tell us at the end there? We wait for it with patience. Anybody else good with that? Anybody good at patience? Or is that kind of a, a struggle? Something that we need, need help with. Thankfully, God doesn't abandon us in this. He's there to help even navigating. Look in verse 26, navigating a relationship with God in the meantime. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself, I love this idea, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings, there it is again, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. The first thing is that you notice that in the meantime, or as we patiently wait, what is it promised that we have? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. I love that, that God's saying, hey, as long as you're, you're, while you're waiting, I've given you a deposit. I've given you a deposit of what's to come, and it's a helper, the Holy Spirit to help you. And what does it say that he's helping us with? What's he helping us with? Basically, in essence, he's helping us figure out 
how to interact with God. How to interact. Do you see that there? It says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. He says, and some of us are just like, man, I, I feel that. I feel that. How does an imperfect, broken person foster a relationship? How does the broken have a relationship with the divine? Like that's a, that's a, a wonderful question. It could be maybe a, a lunch conversation, but how does the broken have a relationship with the divine? We know that it's only possible through Jesus Christ and his death and work on the cross, but once that's established, then how do I, how do I relate? How do I speak to him? Some of us feel like we're alone in that. You're like, man, I like I'm the only one that struggles with that intimacy thing. But this is here in the text, we're saying we have a helper. It's pretty good news, I think, that's saying, I'm speaking for you even when you don't know what to say. Now, it's not a matter of us not knowing exactly the words to speak. You see, even Jesus modeled, do you remember the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven? He modeled how to talk to God. But there's certain things that, man, what we could use some help in, and it points to what we need help with, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's what He helps us with. Basically, in essence, we have no idea with our limited understanding what is best for us and even what to ask for. So God says, I step in and I speak on your behalf. The things that you can't come up with, the things that you don't even know what to ask for, I do it for you. It's interesting to think of the, what he says is for, intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's basically saying it's a language that I'm not capable of. It's communication that I'm not capable of. It's too deep. And I, I love what he says, the, this description of God. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Think of that as a, a wonderful descriptor of God. He who searches hearts. And there we've got an advocate, we have someone that's speaking, an interpreter, if you will, speaking on our behalf. I was, uh, some years back, I was in Argentina on a missions trip, and I had the privilege of preaching in a church there. And one of the challenges in preaching in another country that speaks different languages is working with an interpreter. So it's kind of a, a bit of a mental challenge because you say a few lines, you pause, and then the interpreter says the, the, what, what you said in, the, in Spanish there in that case, and then you say a little bit more, and then the interpreter picks up where you left off. Well, this particular time, we had agreed ahead of time, instead of me trying to say all the, the scripture that I was going to read, I would just say the, uh, I would just point to the chapter and verse, and he would read what I had said. You tracking with me? So I'm there in this interpreter, and I said the verses for him to read. He starts reading them, and I see, I'm, I'm just watching the people in the, in the room. I see their faces kind of be like, oh, start doing weird faces, and, and he starts slowing down and looking up at me. I come to realize I had told him the total wrong verse. He was actually reading about some of the sacrificial practices that you go through in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so people are like, what? Like sacrificial etiquette? What? How does that relate? And I was thinking to myself about this. Maybe it relates, maybe it doesn't. But, uh, but thinking about this as far as us having someone, an interpreter, that knows perfectly what we're trying to say. He not just knows perfectly what we're trying to say, he knows the things that we don't even know to say. He's navigating a communication that, that, that he's like, oh, that's not going to work. Oh, that request is so off, Scott. I'm going to, let's send that through my filter and, and, and appropriately present it before the Lord. It's a beautiful reality 
to know that we have the Spirit helping us navigate our relationship with God. Isn't that a cool picture? And it is in my mind. So the ultimate interpreter, so he's there helping. He's helping with that. In this last section, the last three verses, God also helps us navigate life in this broken world. Let me read this section. We're familiar with this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Needs a little bit of explanation, I would propose. Important that we see here is the big idea is that God helps us navigate through this life while we wait in the meantime. We absolutely love verse 28. How often do we hear that uh, used? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many times have you heard that verse used unsympathetically? or insensitively used. You're in the middle of the hardest trial that you've ever been through, and some goofball comes up to you and says, don't worry, all things work together for good. Like, that is not what I wanted to hear. That's when you punch them in the nose and say, it's okay, because that's going to work out for your good. And, uh, and, and, and so you, you, think, you think about that. You think about how insensitively we throw that around. It's because I would propose we don't understand fully what's being promised there, what's, what's, what is actually being said. I was doing quite a bit of, of reading this, this past uh, week on this and even listening to a few different pastors. And I thought that Tim Keller was very formative in his understanding. He actually pointed to three things that I'm going to, uh, point to in this last couple sections here. Three important truths. The first one we're going to see in verse 28, that bad things turn out for good. Second one, our good things can never be lost. And third is the best things are yet to come in verse 30. So we'll unpack those in our remaining time together. The first one in verse 28 we see, it says, in what and we know that for the, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The first thing that catches your attention there is the all things. The all things. I think, think it, was, it was neat Tim Keller pointed that out, that even the terrible things, we get it all. If you haven't had this, this news in the life of a, of a Christian, it's an important news that we don't get anything filtered from the human experience, we get the full gamut. We get the good, we get the bad, we get all things. And so it's important to understand that because a lot of times we get confused and and our frustration comes from not understanding that simple truth that we get it all. Verse 35 points to it, we might even get more. It says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. Basically pointing to the fact that we get the full enchilada. We get it all. We get the whole package, all that life has to offer. And I think so many people misunderstand their life experiences. They're like, they read that verse and they're like, man, but I thought all things work for good. I, I, I'm confused by that. I, th- I, thought it's, uh, I thought I get to skip some of that. And so much of our frustration and discouragement is the surprise that bad things happen to us. 
So much of our frustration and discouragement is that we're surprised. You're like, how could this happen? I, but I love the Lord. How could I'm, I'm shocked. So it's important to understand in this human experience that we get it all. We don't get to skip we don't get to skip things. Uh, we, we don't get to uh, slide by and skate by and, 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 and miss out on the things. And so our perspective needs to be adjusted. First perspective that needs to be adjusted is when good things do happen, it's only because of God's amazing, unbelievable grace to us. It's only because of God's, I'm not saying up here that we don't get good things. There's things that happen to us that you're just like, man, I can't believe. But it should compel us to worship him and thank you so much. Because what I observe in our world around us is that things are broken and typically don't end up getting better. They end up getting worse. They end up getting worse. And so when good things do happen, it should compel our praise. And when bad things happen, it should compel our level of patience. Just like, well, I get it. The bald guy said it was going to happen. He said it. Like he, he, he pointed it out in Scripture. It's, it's not, it shouldn't be a shocker. So we should respond to difficulty with patience. We should respond to good stuff with praise. Thank you, Jesus. Because anything I get is above and beyond what I should expect on this broken, fallen planet. If you think about it, we're on a planet of billions of people that have shook their fist at God and said, no, thank you, I'm going to go my own way. Why in the world would we be shocked that there's some outcome, some negative outcome to a planet that's packed with rebellious people to God? It shouldn't shock us. And so, but he's also not saying here, and this is important to understand, he's also not saying to us that bad things aren't bad that bad things there's 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 important it's important for us to grasp that hey we don't have to try to sugarcoat the bad stuff when that bad things happen they're bad and i think that's important for us even when we think through how to comfort somebody going through a bad time it's not to pull out the all things work together for good it may be appropriate in some setting but to come along somebody and say man that really stinks that's really hard i'm so sorry you're going through that that breaks my heart that you're having to experience that. That's the appropriate response to come along somebody that's going through difficulty, not throwing around trite examples. Because sometimes, sometimes the good that's going to come from the experience, we don't even see. We don't even see it. And maybe we won't ever even see it in this lifetime. So it's important to understand that in our interpretation of this verse. But it's also awesome to think that God is taking all, I think, picture of him as this master orchestrator. He's taking all of life's circumstances and saying, I'm moving that around. I'm adjusting that. This is all, all going to turn out perfectly. This is going to end really well. I'm doing this with your good in mind. So here's the next important thing that we'll look at in the next verse. Is, well, if it's all about my good, how do you define good? Right? Don't you think that's a valid question? Let me look at what it says here in the text. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. Do you remember when uh, Adam and Eve partook from the tree in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden, Eden, and he had, it was the tree of the knowledge of 
good and evil. So basically, we stole the role that God was supposed to play where he determines what is good and what is evil. And we said, I'm going to, I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to decide good and evil. And in our deciding what is good, we've totally botched it. We've totally botched it. We've so often missed what God says is good with our own definition. We've come to this conclusion in our arrogance that I can better determine what is good than God can. God's saying, no, give me back the reign of that. Give it back to me. Let me be the one that determines what is good for you. I know better than you do. Do you see how that submission has to happen? For us to say, all right, I give it back to you. I'm going to trust that you know what is good. So what does he define as good? He defines, you see it in the text there. He says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed. He's saying, I know what's best for you on this limited time here on this planet. The very best thing that can happen for you on this planet is for you to be shaped to be more like me. For you to be shaped to be more like me. That's his definition of what is good. I don't know what your definition of good, but that's his definition of what is good. And that's what he's saying. All things work towards that, towards that end goal of making you into his, into his likeness. I've shared before one of, the challenge, one of the more challenging things Adrian and I have been through was a long season of not being able to have kids, and it was a real grueling process. And it was so fun to see God's faithfulness in that, ultimately, obviously, with three little ones running around. But I remember in the middle of it, you're just like, God, what are you doing? On the other end of it, you know what it's done? Is it's made me realize he's the giver of life. There's no guarantees. There's no, there's no hey, you put a, a quarter in the, the, the slot machine, pull the lever, and there's going to be a gift that comes out. Like that's not, that's not how it works. What he's taught me is, one, one that he's the giver of life. He's taught, taught me to wait on God. He, taught, he stretched us in so many different ways. And I would propose, even through that little challenge that we faced, that coming out on the other end, you're a little bit more like Jesus Christ. That's the whole idea behind this. All of life's experiences are moving us with that in mind. So as I've wrestled through this, and I was on the phone with a pastor friend, and we were trying to talk through this, of what is good? Does that mean that it's absent of any good circumstances? What is, what is, what is the definition of what we see as good? And this is a quote that I, I, I mentioned on the phone to him. I said, what God, what God brings, you can see that on the screen there, what God brings is good and sometimes it aligns with our definition of good. What God, do you follow that? What God brings is always good. Every once in a while, it aligns with what I think is good. Does that make sense? Sometimes because of our tainted view, our understanding of good is off. But what he always brings is good. I like to think of it in the form of a, a sculptor. Uh, if somebody's starting and they've got a big piece of, of, it always blows me away what sculptors are able to pull off with a huge piece of rock. And they start with this. And what do they start with? They have this picture in mind of what they want to make. And they realize that there's some things that have to come off of that rock 
in order for that sculpture to, to come into realization, for it to become that, the, the thing that's in their mind. And I think when he starts using words of predestined, and, and we'll talk more about that in chapters to come, but when he starts picturing, he's, it's basically saying he had a picture in his mind of what he wanted to do in each one of us, and that was to make us look more like his son. So sometimes, if rocks had feelings, like, man, that chisel hurts. And that's, that's really painful. Oh, especially right underneath here, the ribs. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you play that out from that perspective. That, that really hurts. That's sensitive. But that's the ultimate plan is that he's moving us towards his likeness. So the two guarantees that we see in this section, can, it's so, so much a guarantee that it can be talked about in the past tense, is one, that we're on a collision course to greatness. In other words, we're going to become more and more like Him. And, we've talked about this before, we're adopted into His family. We're adopted. So, we're becoming more and more like Him, but we see in the second part of that same verse what actually is also happening to the image of the Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Kind of a cool picture there. It's easy to, upon the first read to just kind of blaze past that. But when it says firstborn, he's saying you're adopted, and you're adopted even if you're number 3,476,212, you're still considered the firstborn. And that's pretty cool to think about each one of us. It doesn't matter how many sons he's had. And this is another thing that's neat because this was such an inclusive statement. It's saying man and women, man and women, you're all firstborns. You're all in that family hierarchy. You're all considered all the privileges, all the benefits that, became, that came with being the firstborn son, male or, fir, male or female. You are becoming or you have become a firstborn amongst many brothers. Many brothers. How can all the brothers still all be the firstborn? So that's something that can't be taken. Our identity as an adopted child of God that's being shaped into his image. Nobody can take those things away from us. He ends with the, how he ends really most of these sections, pointing to the fact that the best things are yet to come. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You read that section, uh, I'm like, that's kind of a confusing deal. That's, it's kind of an unnatural description there. But if you think about what God's, he's actually saying, or Paul's explaining, is that we can be confident that our God has our best interest in mind. You notice the key words, predestined, called, justified, and glorified basically covering the full gamut of our lives, past, present, and future. Saying every aspect is moving you towards the one end goal. Like, hey, I have your best interest from the past to the present to the future. And the future is what does it end with? He says, who is justified, he also, uh, he also glorified. He's saying that, do you notice the tense of that? It's, it, it's future, but he's saying it as a guarantee. He also glorified. It's going to happen. So all of these things are so secure. So the hope of heaven is what's at the end of the line. And what I want to make sure we understand, I think Tim Keller points this out well. He says, the hope of heaven does not trivialize or deny present suffering. 
In fact, it just does just the opposite. Your souls are so great and suffering so deep that nothing else could provide hope other than eternal glory. In other words, your pain is so great. He's not belittling that by saying, oh, there's something great on the end of the other end of the line. He's not belittling it. He's saying, you are so valuable. You are so precious to me that, man, the only thing that's appropriate to point to is how amazing glory is going to be. That's the only thing that could. And so seeing it more as a compliment rather than a belittling of our, our value, seeing, man, he really must hold me in high regard. If he's saying that this combination of all of my trial, all of my junk, if that is far outweighed by future glory, that means future glory is going to look really, really good. That's what we have to look forward to. And so often, that's what we have as we come together as brothers and sisters. That's the encouragement. But what I took away as a theme running through this whole thing, though, through this whole section, is that he's saying in all of this, in all of this, God's a part of all of it. He's helping through the whole process. He's like, I get it. You're groaning. Creation's groaning. We're all anticipating. We're all excited for it. But I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you navigate what a relationship with me looks like. I'm going to help you talk and say the things to me that you don't even know to say. I'm going to walk through you. I'm going to perfectly orchestrate life's experiences so that the end result is you becoming more and more like me. He's reigning all this, and that's good news for each one of us. Let me pray for us as we conclude. God, I thank you so much for this text that helps us a little better understand what you're doing in the meantime, what you're up to. And the main thing that I see is that you're wanting us to foster intimacy with you, a relationship through your whole, the power of your Holy Spirit as a helper, that you also want us to be being shaped more and more to, into your likeness. I thank you that that's the good that we have in mind. That's the good that nobody can take away from us. Life circumstances and life's happenings, they come and go. We have good days, bad days. But the thing that can't be shaken is what you're molding us into, your likeness. I thank you for your better understanding of what is good than mine. God, my prayer is for each one of us that we'd submit to your good, that we'd submit to your working hand. If you're promising that it's going to happen, we can either come willingly or kicking and screaming. My prayer for each of us is that we'd come willingly. We'd submit to your reign and rule in our lives. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that you have a plan and that your plan is good. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. On that road trip to Ocean City, about halfway in, us as kids would start saying, Hey, Dad, how long till we get there? Be like, he'd be like, Oh, it's about seven hours. I got closer and lower. After a while, he just stopped answering and would just say, Soon, real soon, we're going to get there. And my prayer is that we live with that same type of anticipation of what's to come. We have amazing days ahead. I pray that that would guide and direct how we live with that type of, Man, I can't wait, but I know that is coming soon. Amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.